Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thanks, guys, and uh, good morning, everybody. It's exciting to be here with you live as we are gathering. I think as we have repeatedly said, even though we can't gather together in person this morning, we are gathering online, and uh, I guess that's kind of second best. It's certainly not exactly what we're used to, but uh, as we are here live streaming our service, uh, just a quick word to prepare you for what is going to be our temporary new normal, and I want to emphasize that word temporary Uh, because I believe that and I hope that uh, this is as temporary as possible because as great as this is, hopefully you've got the application, you're able to use that with all the cool things that are linked to that application. It definitely presents everything we're doing here nice, but I also don't want you to get too comfortable with what we're doing here this morning because we are praying fervently that we can be together again soon and I'm really looking forward to that day personally. It'll kind of be like a big family reunion for us. It'll be a great celebration and so um, even as I'm staring, we're, we're we're actually live streaming from the worship center over at the North Campus. And so even as I'm staring at this uh, empty worship center that is usually full of all your wonderful faces here on Sunday morning, I'm missing you, as you even as we're gathering uh, together in our homes. And so let's pray. Let's continue to pray that uh, God would speed this opportunity for us to meet together in person very soon. To that end, I want to pray for us this morning as we begin. Father, as we gather this morning, we know that many of us are weary We're worn out emotionally, we're worn out physically, maybe even uh, we're struggling spiritually uh, as we we move through this new situation that we're in. And uh, it's, it's a little awkward already with the way that we're meeting this morning. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to have the sense to where we are meeting together by your Spirit, Lord, that we would uh, be encouraged by the fact that all of us are gathering together to worship you at the same time. And even though we can't be in person, Lord, we look forward to that day when we get to gather in person again. I hope that it feels like a family reunion as we all get back together. But Lord, until that time, would you sustain us? Would you, by your Spirit, uh, uh, help us to understand and to feel your presence as we are gathered together in different homes throughout our community? And Lord, that we would have a sense to where all the saints are gathered together worshiping you in one in unison uh, this morning as we engage your word. So open up our eyes, open up our hearts to what you have to say this morning, Lord, and we pray that you would be glorified in all things. Amen. All right, so since I know that many of you are gathering with your families at home, uh, including having small kids with you, I want to offer just kind of a a warning about today's content. We're going to get into Hosea chapter 13, and it just so happens that this is one of those chapters that has a lot of kind of violently graphic words in it. So I want to give you a quick warning ahead of time. If you have small kids with you, uh, you may want to consider that um, as we go through this. We're going to read some of those words together in Hosea chapter 13, and then we'll talk briefly about them. The whole message isn't going to be about that, but at the same time, it's unavoidable in what we're looking at in Hosea 13. So I wanted to give you that heads up uh, and word of warning for you in case you're with your family and you have small kids in the room to make the best decision for you and your kids. Um, but I felt like continuing the book of Hosea Hosea was important. We've only got two weeks left in our series called The One Thing, where we've been looking at the book of Hosea. We're going to have this chapter, and the next chapter, we'll finish it up next Sunday. And I felt it was good for consistency purposes to go through and finish the book. But I also, it's also just kind of like last week. Uh, If you had a chance to hear the message last week, it lined up really well with what we're facing in particular in our current situation. Hosea 13 does that as well from a different kind of angle. And we're going to see that here in a minute as we engage in Hosea 13 
uh, in just a few minutes here. But speaking of that, I think something that I've been personally wrestling with, and I'm sure a lot of us have been, is that when you face something like what we're facing in our world today, it causes you to to really uh, reset some things. It stretches you in your faith because so many of us have to make decisions on a daily basis about what we're going to do with work and what we're going to do with even going to the grocery store and how we're going to respond to the government recommendations that we've been given. And if you're leading a group at work or you're in some kind of a a management uh, capacity at work, you're trying to decide what the best thing to do for your company or your employees is. You're trying to decide at least what the best thing to do for your family is or for yourself. And so we've had to make all these kinds of different decisions. And whenever you have to make a decision like that, you inevitably go back to what you believe about it. And it's impossible almost for us to not rely on what we believe and what we consider to be true during these times. I think in many cases, we've had our faith stretched, and we've had to ask ourselves, what do we really believe about this situation? Not just in terms of making decisions, but in terms of just overall viewing and and putting this in some kind of a way that we can understand how to proceed and how to live with um, what we've been kind of stretched to in this extreme situation. And so it causes us, I think, especially in times like this, to think about even questions of our own mortality. And even though you know, the virus may not necessarily be life-threatening in all situations, it certainly causes us to think about our health. It causes, it causes us to think about you know, maybe friends or families or parents or grandparents where we might worry about their health or, or, or where they're at in this whole process. And so it causes us to ask some of those deeper, more important questions. And as I was thinking about that this week, of course, many of you are also aware of the fact that we lost a dear member of our church community this past week. Michael Duarte passed on Friday morning. And um, it wasn't related to the virus, but, um, you know, Michael was one of those guys who, if you had the pleasure of knowing him, it truly was a pleasure to get to know Michael. I've only known Michael for about eight months or so, but uh, I felt like I really got to know him very quickly early on, and we had a really good close friendship. And I felt like Michael was one of those guys that really makes an impact on those whom he really knew. Michael served in our hospitality ministry here at North, and so if you were here on a Sunday morning, chances are you were greeted by Michael on various, several various occasions. And I think Michael had uh, the perfect role in being in the hospitality team because he was a guy for me that really, really seemed like he always wanted to be here on Sunday morning. He didn't, it didn't feel like he was faking it when he was here. He had a, he had a genuine enthusiasm and a joy about being able able to be here on Sunday morning to worship God and to be with God's people. And so the hospitality team was a really perfect place for him. In fact, I remember telling him on several occasions, Michael, I'm so encouraged by you because I realize that when I come and you're so excited about being here that even I sometimes take for granted how special it is to be able to meet together and to worship with God's people. And I remember uh, one of the first times I told Michael that, which I would tell him that often, but one of the first times I told him that, he said, you know, it hasn't always been like this for me. He said, I think I, I, I think I really love this because it's become a priority in my life. Because for a large part of my life, this was not important to me at all. And it's only, after, it's only, it's only been like the past 10 years or so that this has really become something that is a priority in my life. And so I know what it's like to take it for granted, and I know what it's like to really appreciate the blessing. And I thought about that, and I, it was a huge encouragement to me because um, Michael was a guy to me, as I looked at him, as I engaged with him, that truly appreciated how Jesus had saved him and the eternal life that he had been given. Because it was obvious from a guy who seemed to really hunger to see Jesus even now. And now that Michael has passed on, he's getting his full portion as he is with Jesus. 
You know, Michael was a guy who makes me think about the words from Paul in a place like 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And I know it sounds cliche whenever you say you've lost, whenever someone has died or passed on and you say something like, well, he's in a better place. But I really feel like this, this is exactly what it is for Michael. I'm sure that being at home with the Lord is exactly where Michael wants to be. Uh, C.S. Lewis often talked about the fact that this, this life that we live is really a preparation for the eternal life. So that the things that we love in this world, if we love the right things, that when we see Jesus either at our death or when Jesus returns again, that it will be a fulfillment of the things that we already loved in this world. And I think about Michael when I think about this statement because his move from here to eternity seems about as seamless as anyone's could possibly be. That his loves and his hopes are being fulfilled even as he is with Jesus right now. And I say that this morning, of course, because it brings back, to the, it brings back what I think is clearly in focus as we think about whether or not our faith makes a difference during times like these. Because we have to consider things like our mortality. We have to consider things like what our religion, what our worldview, what our faith has to say about times like this. And in all that we're facing, it's a great reminder that it doesn't help to pretend that death doesn't exist. It doesn't help to pretend that death isn't painful. We have to face it, but we have to face it with truth. And we have to face it with a worldview and a faith that is big enough to confront it and big enough to overcome it. I tell you this morning that that's what the Christian faith is all about. Um, take baptism, for example. This past couple weeks ago, which seems like forever ago at this point, but last time we met, which was just two weeks ago, we celebrated 13 people being baptized. And it was a huge celebration, as it should be, because baptism is a central visual representation and celebration of the substance of our Christian faith. But when you think about it, the act of baptism starts out a little bit somber because the first movement that somebody makes into baptism is to go into the water, which represents death and burial. And it's only after they come out of the death and burial that we celebrate it because it is a representation of new life coming out of death and coming out of the burial. But in order for new life to come, death must be engaged, confronted, and overcome. And that's exactly what baptism represents. Listen to Romans 6, 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And look, that's the power and the substance of our faith and hope. If it is true hope at all, it must be able to deal with the ultimate hopelessness that all of us face as human beings, which is death. And our faith does not shy away from that fact. A little later, we're going to talk about why the Christian faith is so unique among all other belief systems and worldviews and religions in the world, especially on this point about suffering and death. But before we do, let's look at Hosea chapter 13 this morning. We're going to continue in our series called The One Thing. And if you have been with us, we've been saying that we call this series The One Thing because we've been focusing on the one thing that is most important, the one thing that is most essential, the one thing that we believe will change our lives more than anything, and that's God's love for us. 
And I want to encourage you this morning, if you are not a Christian, let me say that that's the one thing that you need to understand about the Christian faith. If you're weighing whether or not the Christian faith is true and deciding whether or not you want to believe in the Christian faith, the one thing that you need to do in order to give Christianity its full due is to dive deeply into the love of God. There are certainly other things to understand about the Christian faith, but this is the one most essential thing that you need to know. And as we've been going through this series, we've been looking at the depth and the width of God's love, talking about them as different facets, like on a beautiful gem or a diamond. And so I hope for those of you who are Christians that you're seeing how deep and wide God's love really is for you. And I hope that you're growing in your knowledge of that love each time we open these pages of the book of Hosea. So we're going to look again at Hosea chapter 13. Uh, we don't have words on a screen this morning, so you're going to have to dive into your devices or maybe even your Bible. Dust your Bible off, grab it, and we're going to read from Hosea chapter 13. And uh, we're going to start here in verse 1 as it says this. God's saying this through the prophet Hosea to Israel. And it says this. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incur incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of a craftsman. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or the smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, and they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am, I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion." as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, and her sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Therefore he may flourish among his brothers. The east, though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. All right, so as we said, the hope of the Christian faith, in order to get there, Many times we have to go through the bad news, the honest truth. And we see a snapshot of that here in Hosea 13. There is certainly hope in this chapter, especially in a, in a couple of different places. But what dominates this chapter, of course, is the bad news. And it's not just bad news, but it's bad news that leads to death. And it's not just deaths, but these awful, violent deaths that are pictured here. 
being ripped open by wild animals, children being dashed into pieces, pregnant women being ripped open. And we've mentioned at least a few times in our study of the book of Hosea that many times God will engage in this language that is deliberately extreme because he's trying to wake the Israelites up to what, what, their, uh, what their real situation is. And I think in a lot of ways there's no greater example than what happens here in Hosea chapter 13 of that. Starting in verse 1 though, God says that Ephraim, which is a reference to the northern kingdom, has been exalted. In other words, if you were to look at Ephraim during the time of Hosea, during the time that he was preaching these words to Israel, to the northern kingdom, and probably part of the reason they didn't respond very well to it is because everything was going well in the northern kingdom. If you looked around from the outside, everything seemed healthy, it seemed safe, it seemed protected, they were strong, the stock market was up. As it says at the end, their treasuries were full. And, and they attributed it basically to their partnership or their covenant with Egypt and Assyria. And so in a lot of ways, they're saying to themselves, the reason we're so safe and protected, the reason, reason why everything's so good that we have the good life is because we've partnered with Egypt and Assyria to protect us. And in some ways, they might have even been saying, you know, God told us not to make covenants with Egypt and Assyria, but we did, and look how great things have turned out. Maybe God didn't know what he was talking about after all. But it's not long, of course, before we get into the truth that God brings to where Israel is at. When we get to verse 3, though, we get a peek behind the curtain of the reality of what is actually happening spiritually in Israel and also what is going to happen in history as a result. Utilizing a series, then, of similes, you can see there in verse 3. By the way, my daughter will love my reference about similes. She corrected me and told me earlier that, uh, I use metaphors too much. These are similes, actually. So these are similes there in verse 3, a series of four of them. You see them, the mist, the dew, the chaff, and the smoke. One thing that all of those have in common is that they're here one moment and they're gone the next. And the point that God, of course, is making is saying, look, Israel, you can say that you have relative prosperity right now and everything look, looks great, but the reality is that that is here for the moment. It is temporary, and what is, and what is here will quickly disappear. If you know the Bible, you may be familiar with these images because they're used elsewhere in particular to talk about the brevity that all of us have in terms of, in terms of our life here on earth. James 4.14 is one example. It says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And of course, these kinds of word pictures are designed to remind us of the reality that life is often short, Life is fragile, and, and although that our life here in this world often seems like the substance of our reality, in reality it is really small in the larger scheme of things. For Israel here, it's to remind them that just because things look good for the moment doesn't mean that the true reality of things is great. What Israel finds itself in is due to what the decisions that Israel has made, and yet we see God's grace come in here right after he says those words. In verse 4, it's a key to see how God is going to change things when we see the word but, but I am the Lord your God. And for the next two verses, verses 4 and 5, he begins to pour out his gracious words on them. And we become used to, in the book of Hosea, kind of getting this zigzagging pattern throughout the book of God saying, okay, this is, what, this is your reality, this is judgment that's coming on you, but I will do this, and offering his grace to them, and reminding them in particular of what he's done for them in the past. And he does that right here in these verses as he talks about, I have brought you from Egypt. I was the God who saved you by my grace in Egypt, and that same saving grace is available for you today if you would just respond. And look, Israel, you may think that because of your 
covenants and your partnerships with Egypt and Assyria, which I told you not to do, that that is bringing you safety and security. But let me tell you, the only one who can save you is me. I am your one God. I am your only Savior. Because it is only God who can truly save you. Now, in case we wonder why God keeps repeating these things throughout the book of Hosea, I think it's pretty, he he reminds us here, or, or we see in these words here, how easy it is for Israel to forget. And especially in those times when they have become full or their hearts have been lifted up, again, which is another way of saying that because things look good around them, because they were, quote unquote, living the good life without worries, it was easy for them to forget about God. It was easy for them to forget about the fact that the only way they can have partnerships with Egypt and Assyria is because God provided them with the land and the oil that they were paying tribute to those countries in the first place. And it certainly instructs us as well because it tends to be easy to forget that we practically need God and are desperate for God, especially when things are going well in our lives. When think about it, when things are good, when things are good at work, when you're getting promoted, when your bank account is exactly where you need it to be to pay all your bills and even put some away in savings, when all your relationships in your life are going well, when your health is great, it's just human nature at times to forget how desperate we are for God. Yet it's times when things spin out of control, when we start to see the cracks in the illusion of of the control that we feel among us and around us, that all of a sudden, the reality of the desperate need for God comes to the forefront. And we're starting to see that in certain ways around us even now. Not only among those who are Christians, but among those who also are not Christians, or maybe don't have, don't consider themselves to be religious people. But as we see here in Hosea 13 continuing, the verses that follow then present us with this kind of gruesome imagery of what will happen to Israel if they don't respond to God. Um, God presents himself acting like a wild animal, a lion, a leopard, a bear, all imagery that presents imminent danger that's on the horizon. And sure enough, what we know from history is that about 25 to 30 years after Hosea spoke these words, in fact, Assyria turns the tables on Israel and begins to attack and conquer Israel and then drag them off into exile. And God tells us clearly that was at his hand that he directed Assyria to do that or he allowed Assyria to do that. And so God is not only telling them what their spiritual reality is, but also predicting what will happen in just 25 years of the next generation or so. But again, the promise of God's grace comes to us again in verse 14, comes to them and to us. And he says some familiar biblical language here where God talks about the possibility for redemption for Israel. And we see those words here, the word of redemption specifically from death. O death, O death and O Sheol, where is your sting? Where are your plagues? Right, remind us of a place like 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to these words and how similar they are to what we just read in Hosea 13. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the contrast here is striking when you return to Hosea 13. God's talking on the one hand about the defeat that's going to come at the hands of the Assyrian army, 
in just the next generation, yet at the same time is promising grace that is going to give ultimate victory over the ultimate enemy who is death, the enemy that every human being has to face and confront. All of which brings us back to the question that we started the message off with this morning, which is what is unique about the Christian faith in terms of how we respond to suffering and death, in terms of how we respond to the idea of our own mortality. Because no matter what someone's religion or worldview is, the, it is the ultimate question that everybody has to wrestle with. All belief systems, all religions kind of do it in their own way, even as we're going to see here in a minute, even if it's just to kind of ignore it or to pass it off or, 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 to, or to make it seem like it's not so bad. But every, every single worldview, every single religion must deal with that question. Which then begs the question, what is unique about the Christian faith when it comes to this topic? Well, uh, help me this morning. Tim Keller uh, does a good job of answering this question. He does as good a job as I know of, uh, especially in the way that he contrasts kind of major pers- perspectives and major belief systems in our world. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it in the way that he explains it to kind of help bring clarity to this. But he explains it this way. He says, look, other than Christianity, there are three major types of ancient religious traditions when it comes to answering the question of suffering and death. Now, just because these are ancient beliefs doesn't mean that they don't inform modern beliefs. In fact, a lot of our modern beliefs actually have their roots in these ancient religions and these ancient beliefs. And you're going to see here in a minute when I explain what they are. The first one is what Keller would refer to as the karmic religions. Now, there are all kinds of derivatives of, uh, derivatives, excuse me, of the karmic religions, but that worldview essentially says that what you face in this world, especially as it deals with suffering, is a just result of karma because it's something that you are being punished for from a previous life that you have lived. So cornerstone to this kind of religion, which is a lot of the Asian religions, Eastern Asian religions, is that there is... Um, is that there is reincarnation and that the life that you lived before is determining the quality of life that you have now. And that death itself is just a window or an opportunity to move up in the reincarnation cycle so that eventually, if you you can get to a place that is known as nirvana or is known as just kind of being a part of the all soul where you escape the cycle of reincarnation. And really that's all there is to the meaning of life is that you suffer, you pay what you can, you try to live a good life, then when you get to the end, the hope is that you can move up and you can move up ultimately to a place where you can escape the cycle of reincarnation and just kind of move right back into the all soul or nirvana as some religions call it. That's the first, the karmic religions. And there's a lot of derivatives of that that even exist today. The second is the stoic approach. The Stoic approach is characterized in Buddhism, although Buddhism is also a reincarnation, kind of karmic religion as well. But the Stoic approach has its own understanding of death and suffering, which can be classified by essentially recognizing that suffering exists, but also doing your best to kind of ignore anything that would draw you to an attachment that would cause you to be upset or concerned or fearful about suffering. A lot of the later uh, Greek and Roman philosophies were based upon this, and they had their roots in kind of this ancient Buddhist belief of suffering and death. These are sometimes called the noble truths of Buddhism, and they're kind of like this. First is that life is suffering, that there is suffering in life, and life is filled with suffering. And Buddhism originally identified four types of suffering, old age, sickness, poverty, and death. Secondly is that suffering comes from desire. 
The reason we suffer is because it's a difference between what we desire and what we actually get in this world. And the gap between those two things is what suffering is. And so number three, the way to overcome suffering is to extinguish desire. And this is where the stoicism approach comes from. Because if you can extinguish desire, then you can extinguish the fear of suffering and the pain of suffering and death. And the way to do that primarily is to avoid attachment. So you're compassionate, but you don't attach yourself to anyone or anything unnecessarily because ultimately you will lose that thing. And also, because that thing is not really itself, so, which leads us into the fourth one, which is the eightfold path to enlightenment. That you overcome desire when you realize that the world itself is an illusion and the self or the individual is also an illusion. That what you understand yourself to be is really just a piece of the one big cosmic identity. You are not distinct. You're just a part of the existent being, whatever that may look like, and it's defined by different religions. Um, But in Buddhism, it is kind of nirvana. And so you can see that the instruction here, to be stoic, you, you have compassion, but you don't attach yourself to anyone or anything. If you're familiar with Star Wars, it's kind of like the Jedi mindset. You don't attach yourself to anything because then you fall in love with that thing. And if you fall in love with that thing, you might lose that thing, which might cause you to get angry or fearful, which of course leads to the dark side in the Jedi tradition. But that's kind of where this comes from. Now, the third one is the shame and honor culture. The shame and honor culture is also known as kind of the warrior culture, which says that when you face suffering or when you face death, um, The call for a warrior, the call for someone in a shame and honor culture is to be strong and noble and to sacrifice yourself for the good of family and for others. And so in this case, suffering is almost welcome because it gives you the opportunity to fulfill your ultimate destiny or your ultimate meaning, which is to be strong and to sacrifice even your life for those who might be weaker or for those who need to be protected. Now, All of these three are ancient religions, and you can see that these religions all deal with suffering and death in a way in which uh, they're looking to minimize its effect. And so to this end, what they end up doing is being on the spectrum of denying the reality of suffering or death, or by trying to attach, detach themselves, I should say, from suffering or death so they're not fearful of it or hurt by it. And before we get to Christianity, which is the fourth option in the ancient religions, um, let's talk one more. Let's talk a couple minutes about one more modern worldview. One that is becoming more and more popular today. One that's known as secularism. Now there are all types of secularism that we see around us. Um, under the umbrella of secularism, there's human secularism, scientific secularism, atheistic secularism, agnostic secularism. But essentially, no matter what it's called, secularism is essentially classified by one thing: all you have is the here and now. The physical world that you have, this is all that it is. The life that you're living right now, this is all that you are. There is nothing beyond this world. And, there, and as you can imagine, there is no explanation or no expectation for an afterlife because secularists believe that everything that we have here in this world is, is what, we, what our life is all about and there is nothing beyond what we have in this world. And so the glaring problem, though, with secular belief, then, when it comes to suffering and death, and many secularists will even, be, will even admit this, is that there's no solution to the problem of suffering. In fact, among all religions, modern secularism are least prepared to deal with the suffering in the world. 
Because if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. All worldviews, all religions are based upon the idea that we have to, we have to kind of ha- come to some kind of aspect of truth or meaning as human beings, right? Um, in order for it to hold together, right, we need that as human beings because a human being that doesn't have meaning tends to suffer in the world. So we gravitate towards a worldview that will help explain a sense of purpose or meaning or what we would call truth to how we live and who we are. For secularism, Basically, the truth is that you have the freedom to do whatever you want and find meaning in whatever you want in this world. And from that regard, and in that regard, really there's not one thing that is more meaningful or true than another thing. And so secularists can't handle suffering because what happens is that suffering ultimately takes away whatever you end up attaching yourself to and attaching meaning to. So, for instance... If you're a secularist and you believe that meaning comes through my job and my ability to succeed at a given vocation that I've been given, and suffering comes along and takes away that job or takes away that vocation in some ways, either you're fired or or you're laid off, it's not only a difficult thing to get through, but it actually strikes and and destroys the core of meaning and purpose in your life. Uh, If your meaning is centered in your family relationships, your marriage, or your parenting, or if it's, or for some secularists, it's, it's political, or it's activism, or whatever it may be, working to make the world a better place. If suffering comes along and destroys those things, or affects those things in any way, it causes despair and panic, because you have nowhere else to go for meaning and purpose. Now, resilient secularists might bounce from one thing to another so their marriage doesn't work out, so they move their focus more on their career or a new dating relationship. They get fired from their job. They might start a business and throw all all of themselves into that meaning. But the problem ultimately is that death comes for all of us. And by definition, a secularist has no frame to define what happens after that in the face of death. Now, secularism, by the way, has become more popular in recent years and primarily because, and primarily in the modern Western world. Because for centuries before this, and even in many places outside of the Western world, there are people who are are face to face with death and suffering and their own mortality every single day. And so secularism doesn't play very well in those environments because in many cases, one thing could be here today and gone the next. They live on a day-to-day, week-to-week mentality. That's most of the world throughout history and a lot of the modern world today. It's the modern Western world recently that has succumbed to secularism because we believe that we can provide by, by our means, by our technology, by our security methods, a life for ourselves that will ultimately fulfill us. And it distracts us from thinking about the bigger things like death and our own mortality. And the comfort that it gives us is something that allows us to forget that life is short. That allows us to forget, at least for the time being, that things could turn on a dime. That things could be taken from us in a moment. Now the reason for discussing these, of course, is not to just poke holes in what others believe for the fun of it this morning. But to show, you, to show you definitively why Christianity has the best and most unique response to suffering and death. So how is Christianity different from these major worldviews that we've talked about or any of the other ones that we engage with? Well, to begin with, Christianity was the first of the ancient religions to both affirm the fact that death was awful, that death is painful, but also confronting death by providing a solution. 
It is the only one who dares to say, oh, death, and call out death for what it is, but then in the same sentence say, where is your victory? A rhetorical question that essentially, that essentially trumpets the victory of Jesus Christ and says not only is death awful and painful, but there is a way to overcome it and there is victory through the midst of death. It is the first one to say that suffering and death can be redeemed. Why all ancient religions may deny suffering or the reality of it and secularism gets destroyed by it, Christianity doesn't deny the pain of suffering, but also does not get destroyed by it. As Keller points out then, here's the uniqueness of Christianity. Number one, Christianity presents a God who came into the world and suffered. No other religion says that. That the only God became the only Savior who could really save us by by, by, uh, by becoming a human being, coming to earth and dying on the cross in our place. By suffering everything that a human being suffers in this world, betrayal, loneliness, physical pain, and ultimately death in our place so that he could face it, confront it, and overcome it. Secondly, Christianity presents an afterlife, which is a world of love. So unlike some of the other karmic or reincarnation religions that just look to kind of remove the self to this kind of big being in in some way, this big undefined being, Christianity presents us as people who are individuals created in the image of God, who have eternity in our hearts, who are made for eternity, so that after, so that the afterlife is actually a life where we have an opportunity to love the God who has created us in the way that we were designed, And we also get to love other human beings whom we have loved in this world. So what does that mean then? As far as attachment goes, attachment's a great thing. Because it's just the beginning of a love relationship that we will have with our God and with God's people for eternity. Attachment in this life is a beautiful and wonderful thing, preparing us for ultimately what will happen for eternity. And third, Christianity presents the idea of the resurrection. In other words, we don't live ethereally as disembodied spirits that just kind of float around in eternity forever. In fact, what we often call heaven is really the renewal of the creation that we live in right now. It's new creation. It's the new Jerusalem, as Revelation tells us. And it is not a consolation of the life that we lost. It's not like we live in this world that's so full of wonderful physical things. We have all these physical senses and we get to know people and we enjoy the creation and then all of a sudden we die and heaven is a consolation where we just kind of float around. It's actually the fulfillment of the life that we never had in this world. It's the restoration of the life that we always wanted to experience and that we were made for. It's something greater than what we originally have and so the effect is that jesus delivers us from the fear of death because of what he has done now you've probably heard the historical account of how christians in ancient rome responded to the significant plague of their time back in the third century i think every time you know one of these things come up these global pandemics we talk about this in the church because it's a great historical account it's an encouraging account of how christians responded during that time i think it's worth repeating especially in the situation that we're facing today. But um, if you don't know the story, in Rome, between the years of 250 and 270 AD, what became known as the Cyprian Plague swept through the Roman Empire. At its height, the Cyprian Plague was killing 5,000 people per day in the, in the empire. 
And the Christians in Rome, who at the time were also being affected by this plague, were being persecuted by the Roman government. And the emperor at the time, excuse me, by the name of Decius, blamed the Christians for the plague. They were looking for a scapegoat to blame the plague on, and he blamed the Christians for the plague. So if you can get this, the Christians in that environment were not only being persecuted by the government, but now because the government was blaming them for the plague, they were being persecuted and harassed and maybe even hunted down by their fellow neighbors who were not Christians. And so how did the Christians respond during that time? Well, where people were dying all over the place to where it got so bad that even the government and the officials and the physicians and the doctors who were supposed to take care of the sick began to flee the cities so that they could get out and not get this contagious plague, the Christians stayed in the cities and cared for those who were sick at great risk to their, to their health and even at risk of their lives. And whenever I hear that story, even in the face of all the physicians who ran for the hills, the Christians stayed and cared for those who were persecuting them. I mean, think about this. The day before, they might have been hunted down by their neighbor to be chased out of the city or to be thrown in jail or even to be killed. And then that neighbor gets the plague the next week and they are in their home caring for them and giving dignity even as they are dying. When you hear a remarkable story like that, and again, maybe you've heard it before, the question that always comes to mind when I think about it is, why and how did they do this? Well, we know from historical writings at the time that the Christians who responded to that plague responded in the way that they did because they believed that the plague was a test of their faith. They were focused in particular on two things, being faithful to God, trusting God, and loving their neighbor. It's amazing how when things are going in chaos around us, how it, how it, how it kind of it kind of whittles things down to the most important things that we consider to be essential. For those Christians, it was two things. It was loving God and trusting God and loving their neighbor. Those Christians then were the ones who did not fear death or what the plague could do to them and stepped in courageously to love and to serve people when everybody else left them to die. And I think that's part of the difference that a Christian perspective makes. Where the karmic religions would say in that plague, you got that plague because of something you did in the previous life. And so there's no unjust suffering, so you're getting exactly what you deserve. In fact, if I helped you, I'd be getting in the way of justice and karma, which is not a good thing, so I'm just going to let you die. Or the Stoics might say, well, I want to show you compassion, but I'm not attached enough to you to love you. And so that cuts off at some point, and it's that point probably when 5,000 people are dying, and you've got to get out of there to save your own, to save your own life. Or the secularist might say, well, I want to be compassionate, but at the same time, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you're already dying. Why put myself in harm's way for you? The Christian perspective is the only one that comes to the need with courageous love and says that God has loved me so I can love you. And God has loved me so I don't need to love myself above all things because I know that God has loved me in Jesus. And so I'm free to love you. Now, for the particular virus, of course, that we're facing, it's certainly different than what the Romans or what the Christians faith, faced in third century Rome. And although we're hearing the virus is very contagious, we're also hearing that it's really only serious for certain populations, for those of older adults, and mostly for those who have underlying conditions. And it's important to remember because I think when we think about what it actually is for us to follow these guidelines of quarantine and social distancing, 
we are really doing the best thing for our neighbors, especially for those who are part of a risk group. We don't do this, especially for those of us who are younger or we don't have underlying conditions. We're not doing this necessarily for our own health. We are sacrificing our freedoms. Some of us are sacrificing our jobs and our income so that we can love our neighbors who might be more seriously affected by this virus. What we are doing is, 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 is maintaining social distance or quarantining or whatever we're doing to help stem the spread of the virus so that it doesn't affect our neighbors in a negative way. And that's a bit of sacrifice. It's different, certainly, than what the Christians faced in the third century Rome. But in the same way, we are sacrificing so that we can love our neighbors. I think this comes to the surface when we see something. Maybe you saw this last week when they showed a bunch of college students who were at a beach in Florida and they were. The, you know, of course, the guidelines, the mandate had already gone out for people not to gather in groups like that. But a lot of these college students had already planned their spring break. And so they're out there on spring break on the beach and these huge crowds right next to each other, swimming right next to each other, doing all that stuff that they're not supposed to do. And so the media was there and they were interviewing all these college students. They're like, haven't you heard the, about the coronavirus and what you're supposed to be doing in response? And at least one guy said, well, look, if I get coronavirus, I get coronavirus, man. It's not going to stop me from partying. And it struck me how secular of a mindset that is because, first of all, it's all about me. I think he used I as many times as he possibly could in that statement. He wasn't thinking about anybody else or how his activities might eventually spread to a population that might be really seriously affected by his behavior. And then it also was of the mindset of like, hey, this world is all we got, man, so you only live once. You just got to enjoy what you've got for the moment. And for a lot of people, that's what's causing us both to be on the one side of going nuts with this thing and on the other side of pushing the panic button over this thing. And we've got people who are all around us in those environments and from those perspectives. And we have to respond with the hopeful love that Jesus gives us. We have hope because he has overcome the grave, because he has confronted death and overcome it and given us life. And just like, just like what happened in third century Rome, we have to think about what it means to be compassionate and faithful in our given situation. And I really do think a blessing of this whole time that we're facing right now, this moment that we're facing, is that we're going to have to think about what it's like to do church a little bit differently. And when I say that, I don't mean, you know, what it's like to do church on a Sunday morning like this, like this is going to be our new normal. I hope this is very temporary again. I'm, I'm already missing you uh, even more so as I've been staring at a camera for the past 45 minutes or so. I'm missing seeing your faces here. But I think what it will force us to do is ask, how can we be the church out in our communities? How can we be people who are creatively on mission for Jesus in all the places that we are gathered? So with your community group, with your family, you're going to have to reevaluate what does it look like for the church to be the church Monday through Saturday, not just gathering on Sunday, but how do we respond in this way? And my hope, my hope in all of this is that the Spirit will direct us towards what looks like a more faithful, missionally engaged church. Really a church that we should have been all along. And let me just offer you a few quick guidelines in this. I know that as you pray through it on your own and you think about how God might be directing you in your specific context, you might come up with some really great ideas that are much better than these. But I want to give you a few ideas just to kind of stoke your creative thinking and to stoke your prayers. First of all, Think about spending money redemptively. 
Maybe it's investing in a local business so that they can stay afloat throughout this entire thing and as they get through the thick of it, they can still keep their employees on the payroll and still stay in business to hire more employees back after this whole thing is done. Maybe you do some more takeout food than you normally do to support local businesses, whatever it may be, as long as those businesses can stay open. Maybe you buy groceries and supplies for neighbors, not just for yourself, we'll get to that in a minute, but buy groceries and supplies for your neighbors who can't get out to the grocery stores or who are having trouble getting to getting the things that they need. Maybe you can support local charities who are hoping to address this crisis. Do whatever you can, but here's the thing. Don't take your tithe money that you normally give to the church and give it to something else. This is something in Scripture we are, we are presented with the idea that we are to give our normal tithe, which means 10, which is a model for what we give. But then on top of that, we also give what is referred to in the Bible as almsgiving. It is giving that is set aside specifically for those who are poor, for those who are needy, or in this case, for those who are suffering adversely from this virus and its impact. And that giving in particular is supposed to be sacrificial giving. In other words, what it says is, I'm not going to spend my money here in my budget. I'm going to sacrifice that area so that I can provide for the needs of somebody else in their, in their basic human needs so that they can have those needs met. Maybe it's dipping into your savings as you have to do that. We're prepared to do that as a church, as an elder team. We've already talked about dipping into our reserves to provide for people, which is our savings here at the church. Maybe you sold all your stock a couple of weeks ago when the, when the market turned. And rather than investing all that money in some other kind of stable investment, maybe you take a piece of that and give it away to somebody who needs it or buy supplies for somebody who is short on supplies, whatever it may be. Secondly, give blood. Look, I specifically mentioned this in honor of Michael Duarte, not, but not just because of that. Uh, as his wife, Lynn, told us, being in the hospital over the past few weeks has opened her eyes to the shortage that hospitals are, fill, are filling in terms of their blood supply. And, so, um, and they're going to fill it even more as this thing develops and grows. So if you can give blood, do it. If you're afraid of needles, uh, I don't mean to make light of this, but maybe this is a time to exercise your faith and overcome your fear and give blood because that's one practical way you can support our hospitals and the health and well-being of people around us. Third, and I can't believe I need to say this, but don't hoard supplies. We've all been to the grocery stores over the past few weeks and seen the empty shelves everywhere. And uh, I've got to believe, in fact, I'm pretty sure this is the case, that the reason that shelves are empty is not because the supply chain has necessarily decreased that much. It's because people are buying more than they need. And they're hoarding it all for whatever reason. And I know it's tempting, look, I know it's tempting to try to look at, to look at those empty shelves and to, and to feel like you need to panic and grab as much as you can so that you can be safe as much as you can. But I got to say that is much more of a symptomatic of a secular mindset than it is of the Christian faith. Because what is happening when you take more than what you need, especially during a limited supply time like this, when everybody else is buying stuff too, you're literally taking food out of your neighbor's mouth and taking supplies out of their home. So if you're in a place where you've hoarded and you have plenty right now, um, look for ways to give those, away, those things away. Proverbs 3, 27, 28 says this, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you right now. If you have it with you right now, don't tell your neighbor, I'll give it to you later. Give it to them now and look for ways to give it away. 
Also, reach out to people who may seem hopeless or isolated. Look, we need to honor the social distancing guidelines that we've been given, that's obvious, but that doesn't mean that you can give up on being connected. In fact, we may need to be more connected than we ever have been to this point. For some people, um, the situation that's been created for them, especially if they're, they're off work, is that they may be completely alone in their homes. Not everybody has a great community group. Not everybody has a church with people who love them and care for them. Not everybody has family around them. For some people, the reality is that they are literally alone and isolated in their homes, which is especially concerning for some of our older adults. And so check in with people that you know constantly. Start relationships with your neighbors, even if it means kind of going and just slipping a card or a note under a fam- an elderly family's, uh, you know, doorstep or whatever it may be, just to give them your name and your number so that they can be in contact with you. Text people you know, phone calls, those kinds of things. Yes, that thing in your pocket does more than text and takes pictures. You can actually talk and have conversations through it, and so use it for that. But whatever it may be, reach out to those and communicate to those who might be hopeless and lonely. And finally, this is the last thing. Pray for God's mercy. You know, something like this humbles us and reminds us not only of our own mortality, but our human limitations, including the fact that we don't know when this thing's going to end and how it's going to end. We don't know ultimately how many people will be affected by this. We don't know how many thousands of people will end up dying as a result. We have experts all over the planet working day and night to come up with a solution for a vaccine, but we sh- and we should certainly pray for them. We should pray for wisdom and for insight and for strength as they lead us. But more than anything, we need to pray to the God who is in control to have mercy on us. Have mercy on those who are sick. Have mercy on the thousands who are going to be affected either directly or indirectly by this virus. We need to pray that he would turn the tide miraculously and give us mercy. Because it's not only the direct impact of the virus, but the issues that arise in our world all over the place, and we need God's mercy. And so to close in response before we bring the band up to lead us in one last song, I want to uh, pray a prayer of mercy for us. Lead us in a prayer of mercy. And to do that, I want to start by reading uh, a prayer of mercy that comes actually from the Bible, from Psalm 86. This is a prayer of King David as he's praying for God's mercy. If you look up Psalm 86, if you have it again in your device, or you pull out your Bible and read along with me, that'll be helpful. I'd also encourage you that during the week, pray this prayer or read through this prayer so that it can encourage you to remember to pray for mercy. Maybe it's something that you read over your family or you read with your family as we all ask God that he would bring his mercy to this situation. In Psalm 86 and verse 1, it says this. This is King David saying, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble, I will call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth and unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. 
O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because of you, Lord, because you, Lord, have helped me and have comforted me. Let's pray. Lord, we join with the prayer of King David here from Psalm 86, the, the, the prayer of your word to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would comfort us, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us a proper perspective. When so many things are swirling around in our lives and in our hearts, Lord, when, when, when we open up day after day, bad news after bad news, Lord, it can really do a, a number on our hearts. It can really wreak havoc on our souls, on our spirits. And so, for, Father, we pray that you would enliven us. You would help us to see clearly the way that you would have us to react in this way, that we would respond as people who trust you and who believe in the one who has overcome death, who has confronted death and overcome it once and for all in our lives. And even if we need to say to ourselves, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? May we say that in faith. And also, Lord, that we would be compelled as a result to have courageous love for those who are around us. Our world is in such need of the good news of Jesus Christ, and you have called us as plan A, your church, your people, to be the ones who communicate it by the way that we live, by the way that we speak, and by the way that we sacrificially give towards those who are in need. So Lord, I pray that you would continue to direct us, that this wouldn't leave our hearts as we kind of leave this time together, but it would continue to direct us throughout the week. And Lord, in the end, we ask that you would have mercy on us, It breaks our hearts to know the people who are already affected by this virus outbreak and those who will be affected in the days and weeks and maybe even months to come. So we cry out to the God of compassion, Lord, that you would give us mercy, that you would turn the tides of this thing miraculously for your glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. pop in to say a, a, a quick thank you uh, for joining us this morning and uh, may the Lord bless and keep you and your families this week. Until we meet again, we see each other next Sunday. Uh, be good and be blessed. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.